Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 81, Sola Scriptura. Before we get into today's debate between a Protestant and an Eastern Orthodox on the topic of Sola Scriptura, there are just a few things that I want to briefly talk about. Uh, the first thing is, last week I, I made a couple of uh, announcements of sorts. Uh, one is that I was looking for a new web hosting service because I wanted to move away from Podbean, uh, which has been an increasing source of frustration for me. Uh, and what's more is, you know, I, don't, I never blog anymore, and part of the reason is because I've been sick and tired of maintaining both a blog website and a podcast website, uh, and I wanted to combine the two. Well, uh, within days of having uh, published the last episode where I mentioned that, I received a very gracious offer by a web hosting company to host my website, uh, temporarily at least pro bono, um, and uh, should I at some point be able to afford their hosting fee, um, then I'll be able to pay them at that point. Um, so... I just think that's awesome. I've already begun to uh, copy over all of the podcast files over to the new web host. Uh, I've already made a lot of progress, and uh, I anticipate sometime within the next couple of weeks being able to start uh, publishing there and directing traffic in that direction. Um, don't worry about anything right now. Continue to subscribe to the Podbean feed, um, and uh, you know I will automatically update iTunes and Zoom to point to the new podcast feed once it's made available. So you don't need to do anything just yet, but just be aware that here in the near future, um, you'll have an opportunity to switch over the feeds. And I'll continue to publish to both feeds uh, at least for a while, if not until the end of my contract with Podbean, which is several months from now. Um, so you, you shouldn't have to do much work, and you'll have plenty of time before you stop receiving notifications from the other feeds. Uh, but this will be an opportunity to uh, to blog and podcast on the same website. Uh, it uses WordPress, which gives me a lot more flexibility uh, than I think the other two services used. And um, yeah, I'm just I'm just super excited. So be looking forward to that. The other thing that I mentioned last week uh, or last episode was that. Um, I was considering how it is that I could begin to accept donations, uh, personal gifts from my listeners, uh, well, from you, <laughs> my listeners. Uh, well, I, I went ahead and I signed up for a PayPal account for my podcast, for my ministry, I guess I should call it, uh, and I've created a donate button and a subscribe button with uh, several different subscription options um, so that if... If there are any of you, and please understand, I'm not going to be soliciting this frequently or anything like that, uh, but, if, but if any of you want to give a personal gift, either either in the form of a one-time gift or a monthly gift subscri subscription, uh, I've got that available now. Um, if you go to theapologetics.podbean.com and uh, look in the pages on the left side menu, uh, you'll see a uh, you'll see some button, uh, some links to pages which will have those buttons. And if you click on them, you'll be able to securely uh, make a one-time donation should you decide to, and you'll be able to subscribe monthly as well if you'd like. Um, and uh, you know, I'll, I'm going to continue to support the ministry out of my own pocket so long as I can. Uh, but any gifts that you do give me will go 100% to the ministry for things like web hosting fees. Again, once I can afford to pay the hosting company that's uh, doing it for free right now, uh, I'll be able to pay for web hosting fees, domain registration, renewals, equipment, stuff like that. Uh, and one listener, I just want to thank you so much. I won't mention you by name, uh, but one listener has already uh, made a, a gift, a monthly gift subscription that I'm just thrilled about. I'm very excited, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, those are available if if you um, if you're so inclined. The next thing that I wanted to mention was that you know I'm I'm. I'm still waiting to hear back from anybody who might be willing to take me up on the offer to debate annihilationism again. Um, I've received some polite declines and one very mean <laughs> decline from a very well-known proponent of traditionalism. Um, some of you can probably guess already who it is just by saying how mean his response was. I think he called me a heretic multiple, you know, something like nine times in his email. Uh, but... Uh, but I, I haven't received any um, acceptances, <laughs> and there's still several invitations floating around out there. Um, so you know, we'll see what happens. I'm not going to make I'm not going to make my ministry all about annihilationism, and I'm not going to go desperately seek debates so that I can show people that this is an orthodox view, orthodox in the Protestant sense, not Eastern Orthodox. Um, 
it's just not worth the energy to frantically seek out a debate opponent. And I'm just going to sit back and see if anything comes my way. Uh, and in the meantime, I'll continue to podcast on a variety of other topics, and occasionally this one as well. But there is somebody who did get, very quickly actually, an acceptance to uh, to debate, and that's my good friend Dee Dee Warren, host of the Preterist Podcast. Um, the, uh, the listener who's been sending invitations to people to debate me also sent out a... Um, uh, or was helping me to find people to debate Dee Dee Warren. And one name we came across was Alan Kirshner. And very soon after emailing him with that uh, suggestion, uh, Dee Dee and uh, Alan Kirshner were able to come to an agreement on a general time frame and a thesis and a format and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just utterly thrilled. It's going to be an in-person uh, f- uh, formal debate. It'll be somewhere in South Florida. We're looking for venues to host a debate. If you guys have any suggestions, if you know of any venues in South Florida, churches or things like that, that might be willing to host a debate on preterism, um, please email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com or Didi at preteristpodcast at gmail.com and let us know uh, if you have any suggestions. We're also looking for volunteers to do um, video and audio recording so that we can publish the debate in either Didi's debate or I mean, either Didi's podcast or mine or both or whatever. So if you want to volunteer, if you live in the South Florida area or would like to travel there and do some tech stuff to you know, record the uh, record video and audio. That'd be great. Again, email us if you if you would like to do that. Uh, and what I'm really excited about is oh, and by the way, I should probably mention I don't think I already did that it's going to be in the winter time frame. So we're talking December of 2012 or January of 2013. Uh, presuming, of course, that the world doesn't come to an end by then. Uh, but I'm really excited because both have agreed to allow me to moderate the debate, uh, which is really incredible. I'm very excited. I've already gotten permission from, from my wife to begin saving for a round-trip ticket and a hotel, you know, a night stay at a hotel room. Uh, and, you know, this is going to be really good motivation to lose a bunch of weight, too, so I can look good in the suit in front of the camera uh, and do the moderating. But I'm just super excited. I hope that you are as well. Um, I, I will not, by the way, be using any of the donations that come into my podcast to fund my trip over to Florida. Uh, I'll do that entirely my, out of my pocket. If you would like to donate, however, to Didi, um, that would be really helpful as they've agreed, Alan and Didi have agreed that Didi, uh, since uh, since Didi lives in South Florida and Alan will have to travel from New Jersey to South Florida to do the debate, uh, Didi has agreed to pay half of Alan's expenses. And so if you, um, if you would like to contribute to Didi's ministry so that she can help pay to have Alan uh, fly from New Jersey to South Florida, definitely email her at preteristpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to the preteristblog.com and there are some links there to donate to her podcast. I would definitely encourage you to contribute something. I think it's going to be uh, a fantastic debate. Um, I've rambled on for a good amount of time, so I guess I guess that's about all I've got to say. Let's go ahead and play the next uh, promo in my promo rotation, uh, which is for Carm Radio with Matt Slick. There is a God. You are not him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the day of judgment. Matt runs the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, otherwise known as CARM, which you can find at www.carm.org. You can listen to CARM Radio's uh, podcast, which used to be known as Faith and Reason, but isn't any longer, so I think I might have to change that promo. Uh, But it's live with Matt Slick, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific Time on KSPD in Boise, Idaho, AM 790. Or you can subscribe to the podcast for free. Uh, Matt and I don't see eye to eye on several things, not the least of which which is annihilationism, um, but uh, um, but you know I really enjoy his ministry. I think that on some key essential areas he's very good, um, and you know his his uh, obstreperous I think that's the word his obstreperous uh, demeanor um, while putting off in some cases and other cases can be quite enjoyable to listen to. Uh, it's not for everybody, but um, I would encourage you to check it out if you haven't already and, and make your mind up for yourself. Uh, so again, that's www.carm.org for the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry with Matt Slick. And with that, let's move into today's debate. They form the only infallible rule of faith for which we base the church. Let's talk about inspiration. God 
Regardless the art that no mistake is say yes As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Tuesday, March 27th, 2012. But whenever it is you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning in to what is now the sixth The Apologetics Podcast Debate, this time dealing with the doctrine of sola scriptura and whether or not scripture is the final authority for Christians. And it'll be between a Protestant and an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Rob Bowman is my Protestant guest today. Rob is currently Director of Research at the Institute for Religious Research. He previously served as Manager of Apologetics and Interfaith Evangelism for the North American Mission Board. He's taught at Luther Rice University and at Biola. He's author of Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ. And that's just to list a few items from his proverbial CV. Rob, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Reverend Lawrence Cleanwork is my Eastern Orthodox guest. Lawrence is editor of the Eastern Greek Orthodox New Testament. He's the rector of St. Innocent's Orthodox Church in Eureka, California. He serves on the faculty of Humboldt State University and at Euclid. And he's the managing editor of the Orthodox Answers website, just to list a few items from his CV. Lawrence, thank you so much as well for joining me. My pleasure, too. With those introductions out of the way, let me briefly explain today's debate. The proposition is this, affirming sola scriptura, scripture is the only infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. Rob Bowman affirms the proposition and Lawrence Kleenewerk denies it. They have agreed to the following format. Rob will begin with a 15-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, followed by Lawrence's 15-minute opening. Rob will give his 10-minute rebuttal, followed by Lawrence's 10-minute rebuttal. And at that point, Lawrence will have 10 minutes to cross-examine Rob, followed by 10 minutes in which Rob will cross-examine Lawrence. Following cross-examination, Lawrence will present his five-minute closing, and then Rob will finish with his five-minute closing. Uh, that will close the debate proper, but then we'll have about 30 minutes of Q&A in which I will ask four questions, some of which were sent in to me by listeners, uh, each to Rob and Laurent, alternating between them. The one to whom the question is directed will have two and a half minutes to respond, and his opponent will have 60 seconds to follow up, and that'll wrap things up. So, with all that out of the way, I'm going to open briefly in prayer, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for bringing us together today. Um, I know that we sharply disagree on this topic. Some of us do. Uh, I just pray that um, that you would. We know that you're living and active, and so as much as we may disagree here, we know that you can guide us into the truth and help us to know what it is that you've designed to be the infallible rule of doctrine and practice for the church today. I, I pray that you would soften the hearts of those of us that are participating today and those of us who may be listening, uh, who may be wrong when it comes to this question. Soften our hearts, guide us into the truth. And as importantly as that, if not more so, help us to, to remain calm and respectful. Help, help us to discuss this in a loving and gracious fashion uh, so that anybody listening who might not know your son, Jesus Christ, will not be put off by the demeanor of us uh, imperfect human beings. So again, thank you so much. And uh, it's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Rob, um, if you're ready to go, then as soon as you start talking, I'll start your 15-minute timer for your opening statement. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me in this uh, debate, and uh, Lawrence, thank you for participating. Uh, the proposition that I, as an evangelical Protestant, will be defending in this debate is the following. Scripture is the only infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. This proposition expresses what evangelical Protestants uh, mean by the doctrine known by its Latin name sola scriptura, or scripture only. Now, there is a sense in which my task can be reduced to that of defending the word only in the proposition, or more precisely, the words the only. This is because the Orthodox Church uh, historically has affirmed that scripture is an infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. The issue that divides Protestant and Orthodox Christians here is not the infallibility of scripture, but whether the church or any of its pronouncements outside the Bible uh, is also an infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. For example, John Anthony McGuckin, in his 2008 book, The Orthodox Church, states, and I quote, While orthodoxy ascribes infallibility to the scriptures as the word of God, it does not divorce them from the tradition at all, uh, in the way, end quote, in the way that uh, McGuckin sees Protestants as doing. 
so I don't plan to be defending the infallibility of Scripture here, since it should be a given uh, common ground between evangelical Protestants and Orthodox believers. Of course, if I were debating a liberal Protestant or a Mormon on the nature of Scripture, I would not be able to take the infallibility of Scripture as a given. The focus of this debate, then, is on the sola, the word only, in the Reformation slogan, sola scriptura. Like all slogans, this one can be misunderstood, so let's be clear about what it does not mean. First, sola scriptura does not mean that the Bible is all Christians need. It is not all that we need to be saved or to live a faithful Christian life. Me and my Bible is not a complete picture of the Christian life. More than anything, of course, what I need is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus and me isn't an exactly complete picture of the Christian life either, but at least it would express the right priority. In addition to Christ's saving work on my behalf, I need the Holy Spirit, I need the Bible, I need prayer, I need the sacraments, and so on. Uh, I also need the church uh, for many reasons. I need to hear the gospel. That happens through the witness of people who are part of the church. I need to participate in corporate worship of God. That happens in the church. I need the encouragement of fellowship with other believers in the church. I need to be instructed, exhorted, challenged, rebuked, comforted. That all happens in the church. Uh, Sola Scriptura does not deny or diminish the importance of any of these things. Second, Sola Scriptura does not mean a rejection of all tradition. The historic evangelical doctrine of sola scriptura is that taught by the Protestant reformers of the 16th century, such as Luther and Calvin, who held the traditions of Christianity, especially those of the early church, uh, in high esteem. This Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura should be clearly distinguished from what might be called and has been called restorationism. Restorationism maintains that the church either ceased to exist altogether or that it was so thoroughly corrupt that the proper approach was to start over from scratch, uh, ignoring and rejecting all traditions uh, between the first century and whatever day you happen to be living in, and just reinvent Christianity. Restorationists have often rejected the classic Christian doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation, And even those who don't reject these doctrines typically view the early creeds in which they are set forth, such as the Apostles and Nicene creeds or the Council of Chalcedon's definition, with great suspicion. Now, the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura doesn't fall into this erroneous way of thinking. It respects what the early church fathers called the rule of faith, which was the essential basic confession articulated in the Apostles' Creed and elaborated later in the Nicene Creed. Okay, then, so what does sola scriptura mean, and why should you accept it? Let me answer this question by explaining and defending uh, what I will call the basis, meaning, and significance of the sola in sola scriptura. First, the basis of the sola is that scripture is the only verbal word of God available or accessible to the church. Now, there are two parts to the argument here. A, Scripture is the only written word of God available to us today. And B, we have no human beings living on the earth today whose oral teachings are the word of God. All right, so point A, uh, dealing with the basis of the sola. That scripture is the only written word of God is, for Christians, really true by definition. Whatever is the written word of God is, by definition, scripture. Whatever extant available texts that are the word of God are and should be recognized as scripture by the church. Other written materials accessible to us may be true, uplifting, faithful, valuable, but they're not the word of God, and therefore they are not scripture. What makes Scripture unique, what sets it apart, is that it is the only written word of God in the church's possession. Christ and the authors of the New Testament affirmed this unique character of Scripture in many ways. In numerous places, they attribute the very words of Scripture to God as his word. Jesus, for example, actually uses the expression, the word of God, in reference to Scripture in Mark 7.13 and in John 10.34-35. 
just to name a couple of obvious examples. Point B is that we have no human beings living on the earth today whose oral teachings are the word of God. In other words, we don't have living prophets and apostles. Again, if I were debating a Mormon, this would be a focal point of disagreement, but it shouldn't be here. The Orthodox Church does not claim to be led by prophets and apostles. Apostles in the New Testament were individuals who had personally seen and heard the risen Christ, as seen in such passages as Acts 1, verses 21 to 25, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, and who had received their commission directly from Jesus Christ, as Paul, for example, says that he had in Galatians 1, notably verses 1 and 11 to 12. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul tells us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the church's cornerstone. That term foundation is a metaphor picturing the apostles as their, in their unique and unrepeatable role as the first generation founding members and witnesses of the church. No disrespect to any Christian leaders to living today, but none of them can claim to be apostles or prophets. None of them can claim that their teaching is the word of God. This is why I wanted the word today in the resolution that we are debating here. Scripture is the only infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. Now, the biblical arguments that non-Protestants often use to establish an oral tradition distinct from the written word of God in Scripture, these arguments fail because the biblical texts on which they are based are not referring to an oral communication that is available to us today. Now take, for example, Paul's statement in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, end quote. Only by ripping this text out of its historical context can it be imagined to support the idea of an authoritative oral tradition existing in the 21st century, distinct from the written word of God in Scripture. What Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is that they should hold on to the apostles' teaching, whether they received it orally in person from the apostles themselves or in writing in the form of an epistle. Now, if we had audio recordings of the apostles' teachings, those could function as authoritative alongside the epistles, but of course we don't. If we want to know what the apostles taught, uh, we can find out for sure only through the writings that they left behind in the New Testament. If we have no oral word of God available to, the, to us today, and if scripture is all of the written word of God available to us today, then of course it follows that only scripture is the verbal communication or word of God available to us today. And this is really the whole basis for Sola Scriptura. The doctrine of Sola Scriptura is really an appeal to Christians to look to God alone as the final infallible authority for the church. If I may put it this way, sola scriptura is really based on solus deus, God alone. It means that God is the sole infallible authority. God is infallible, and what God says, his word, is, of course, infallible. No other verbal communication or material available to us has this character of being the absolutely trustworthy, infallible word of God. Creeds may be admirable, noble, even faithful statements, but they're not the word of God. The church may learn from them, be guided by them, uh, but they are not the word of God. Well, what then does sola scriptura mean? It means that scripture is the only publicly accessible, infallible, verbal expression of God's truth in the world. Oh, there are all sorts of other fine expressions of God's truth, but the only verbal expression of God's truth that is publicly accessible, visible, infallible, is God's word in Scripture. For example, the sacraments are wonderful expressions of the gospel, but they are nonverbal. Private promptings of the Holy Spirit to individuals are expressions of God's truth, but they're not publicly accessible, visible. Uh, they're not something that can function as the rule of, of doctrine and practice for the church. Creeds are publicly accessible, verbal expressions of God's truth, but they're not infallible. That is, they are not guaranteed to be unfailingly 
uh, true because they are not God's word. Infallible doesn't just mean true. It means that what is said cannot fail to be true. It cannot be false in any way. The basis of sola scriptura, then, is that only scripture is the written word of God available to us today. What sola scriptura means is that only scripture is a publicly accessible, infallible, verbal expression of God's truth available to us today. The significance of this doctrine is that only scripture is the infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. Only those truths about God and our saving relationship with him that are clearly taught in scripture or shown to follow from the teachings of scripture may be required of Christians uh, to believe. Non-Protestants constantly argue that this conclusion is not itself taught in scripture and therefore is self-defeating. If scripture does not teach sola scriptura, so the argument goes, then sola scriptura cannot be true. Not a few Protestants have been misled into accepting this reasoning and consequently have left Protestantism for some other form of Christianity, whether Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, or, much worse, a heretical sect such as the Mormon religion. But this argument against sola scriptura is quite flawed because, in fact, the doctrine follows from what Scripture clearly teaches. I've already summarized the evidence from Scripture that Scripture is the Word of God and that what human beings say outside of Scripture uh, that we have available to us today does not rise to the level of the authority of the words of the apostles and prophets speaking on behalf of God. Uh, this is really the whole basis of the doctrine of sola scriptura, and it comes straight from the Bible itself. Of course, while the apostles were still alive, they expected Christians to treat their oral teaching as equally authoritative to their written teaching. In this respect, the first-generation church's infallible rule was not limited to written scripture, a fact that non-Protestants take out of historical context to exploit as an argument against sola scriptura. But we see the apostles themselves in later New Testament writings pointing the way as the church was about to make the transition from the apostolic era to the post-apostolic era. For example, in Second Peter, the apostle Peter recognizes that his life is coming to an end and the church is going to be assaulted by false teachers. His advice to them is not to submit to the infallible teaching of the church, but rather, quote, to remember the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, if we want to remember those words today, we can do so by finding them in the Old and New Testaments. The doctrine of sola scriptura, then, is scripturally based. It follows from the unique character of scripture as the only available verbal word of God for the church today. All other teachings, therefore, whether found in creeds or confessions or any opinions of men, however uh, respectable, uh, however faithful those Christians may be, must be tested by the word of God, which is found for us today only in scripture. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Rob. Uh, Lawrence, it's now your turn, and as soon as you start delivering your opening statement, I'll start your 15-minute timer. Okay, uh, thank you for uh, this uh, excellent uh, opening statement, Rob. I think it was a good presentation, and I've seen your debates before, and I think this could be a very uh, uh, respectful and constructive discussion and exchange. Now, my task today is obviously uh, to be the, the negative person, to uh, to go against the, the proposition. And it's always a bit uncomfortable to do so because, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of agreement there on the unique nature of Holy Scripture. And so I will indeed uh, offer some uh, counter-arguments and also try to offer a more positive and constructive approach to the Scriptures in the context of church and tradition. Also, it is difficult to write a proposition for a debate over sola scriptura, because as a slogan, as in fact Rob explained, it can be a misleading slogan, and that is one point that I will try to emphasize and uh, express concern over, even though Rob did a very good job trying to narrow down the meaning of this, uh, this slogan. In many ways, from an orthodox perspective, Sola Scriptura is almost correct. If I may, for example, uh, cite the Catechism uh, 
by uh, Metropolitan Hilarion. Uh, it's called The Mystery of Faith. He writes in his introduction, page 8, that dogmas are revealed by God and are based on Scripture. So we agree that the Scriptures have a unique authority and that sola scriptura, as we will see, could be true in a narrow sense. However, what I want to emphasize, first of all, and which, in fact, Rob admitted, is that as a slogan, it is, uh, it is something that can be misunderstood, uh, that is often misunderstood, and that can be extremely dangerous and even toxic. It's easy for someone to say, sola scriptura, therefore, I operate without tradition, and I operate without the church. All I need is my infallible Bible, and I can do all these things. In a way, it reminds me of the famous triple rope of the book of Proverbs, which for us would be scripture, church, and tradition, compared to a single rope, which would be uh, the Bible disconnected from its proper environment. So I want to look at the proposition, and I want to, to show what would be some of the, the points of concern with it. It starts with, of course, affirming sola scriptura, and I've explained the concern with definitions. Definitions vary so much that it's difficult to really have an agreement among Protestants on exactly what it means. Uh, for example, in the uh, Westminster Confession of 1648, which is still uh, quite authoritative among uh, Protestants, it says that the authority of the Holy Scripture, which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God. And of course, this brings us to the first word here is Scripture. Scripture is the only infallible. But what Scripture? As the uh, well-known uh, Protestant apologist uh, R.C. Sproul has admitted, the scriptures must be seen then as a fallible collection of infallible texts. If indeed the scriptures have no need for a testimony from the church. We would, on the other hand, say that the scriptures can function as such because of an external organism or divinely appointed authority, which is, in this case, the, the bishops of the churches discerning what the canon ought to be. And indeed, when Christians discuss what the scriptures teach, the question what scripture is indeed very important because what canon, how many books, what textual platform for the New Testament or for the Old Testament, what translation will we use? What interpretation when there is controversy over translation? I'm assuming that Rob means the originals in the original language. That's the infallible uh, document. But we can see that there's, there's a real concern here regarding the very concept of Scripture. It does not exist in a vacuum. It is related, it is inseparable from the organism that produced it. There's also the question of the word infallibility. What does it mean to be infallible? As Rob said, well, the best would be to say sola dei. Only God in the Trinity is infallible. Only God can save us. I would prefer to have the slogan sola amor, love only, because as St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, this beautiful text, love never fails. Love is infallible, and God, of course, is love. I could even say that sola ecclesia, this uh, much um, uh, criticized uh, uh, slogan uh, for those who prefer sola scriptura, sola ecclesia actually has also some significant scriptural backing, because in Matthew 16, verse 18, we see that the church will not fail in its battle against the gates of death or Hades. In the ultimate battle that really matters to us, the one against death, the church will not fail. The church is, in that sense, in the sense of salvation, infallible. It is also described, as we know, in 1 Timothy 
as the pillar and foundation of the truth and the household of God. Finally, the scriptures never exist, you could almost say objectively, as an object that is disconnected from a reader. In other words, the Holy Spirit that inspired the, the scriptures and also uh, was at work to preserve the scriptures needs to be at work in the believer, and that would be for us in the context of the life of the church, for it to be properly understood. Otherwise, the same Peter, which um, uh, Rob cited, uh, can say that in St. Paul things are difficult to understand, and they can be twisted for one's own destruction. And we Orthodox uh, see this twisting and the explosion of denominations and the variety of opinions because of this. We say that the scriptures disconnected from church and tradition will indeed uh, result in this, you could say, failed state of Christianity today, extreme division and controversy. And then the proposition talks about the scripture being the sole infallible uh, authority for doctrine and practice. Now, I would say that Orthodox Christians would have no major issue with the word dogmas or doctrines because the scriptures do contain the, the, the kerygma and the dogmas of the faith. As I cited uh, Bishop Hilarion, now a leading bishop, uh, uh, Metropolitan Hilarion, that the dogmas must be based in the Holy Scriptures. What is not derived from Scripture cannot, in fact, be dogmatized. However, when it comes to the issue of practice, there's a real concern here, because it is very clear for those who read the New Testament and see what kind of a document it is, that the way things are done in the church, such as the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the two you know, major uh, sacraments that Protestants recognize, there is no instruction on how it is to be done. And therefore, I would suggest that when it comes to the inner life of the church, tradition is needed to have an infallible, that is, a secure way to do things in a way that is God-pleasing and in conformity with what the apostles did and taught. For instance, the verse that Rob cited, which is 2 Thessalonians 2.15, which talks about the apostles delivering both oral tradition and teaching as well as written teaching, the epistles, I would say that this, of course, shows that the scriptures themselves do not teach Sola Scriptura because the scriptures are written at a time of inscripturation. Therefore, Sola Scriptura does not operate during this time. For it to be taught in scripture, it would have to say, after the apostles are gone, then you will only have the scriptures as your sole infallible rule of faith for doctrine and practice. And we do not actually see this uh, teaching. I would further say that when it comes to the, the practices, in this case, uh, the sacraments, what we can see is that the inner life of the church, what in fact we call the mysteries in the Orthodox uh, tradition, were reserved like pearls, so to speak, for those who were members of the church. Indeed, those who were not members were dismissed and could not remain during the services. And so St. Basil uh, would later on explain that the churches have received these traditions from the apostles, which were not in writing because they were intentionally preserved in the churches through the bishops and presbyters and deacons in succession, not to be revealed uh, at first. And they were, of course, uh, eventually uh, written down. And so this tradition, which was oral at first, then became written. And this for us is very important because by following these traditions, we know that we are not failing to accomplish God's work in uniting people to Jesus Christ in these great and holy mysteries. And then finally, there is the word today, the sole infallible rule of truth and uh, doctrine and practice for Christians today. 
I think the point is that, uh, as I mentioned, and as was admitted, is that it wasn't true when the scriptures were written, that is, in biblical times. Because at that point in time, Saul's scripture was not in operation because the word of God was delivered both orally by the apostles and also in writing. And so this leads to a real question about how this process took place and how can the scriptures teach the law scriptura when, in fact, that is not an operating principle at the time of inscripturation. There's other issues that need to be discussed, but I want to affirm that the orthodox proposal, therefore, is that even though the scriptures do contain the saving proclamation of Jesus Christ and the love of God in Jesus Christ. However, this has to be completed uh, in the church and through tradition to be the triple road that does not fail to bring God's people to salvation. And I'm uh, done here with my uh, opening statement. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. Um, with that, Rob, if you're ready to go, as soon as I hear you speaking, I'll begin your 10-minute timer for your first rebuttal. All right. Uh, well, Lawrence, thank you very much for your opening statement. And uh, we've got two interesting uh, perspectives on the table. Uh, I would like to uh, start off by simply uh, pointing out, as best I could tell, and it's possible I missed it, uh, but as far best I could tell, uh, Lawrence, you did not uh, provide us with uh, any basis for thinking that something other than Scripture uh, provides to us today an infallible rule of faith and practice. There was no real argument that such a thing exists outside of Scripture, uh, but rather simply objections to uh, the doctrine of sola scriptura that, uh, that don't provide a, a real counterexample to the claim, which is that Scripture alone has this uh, character, this authority, uh, as the infallible rule of faith and practice, or of doctrine and practice. And I think that would be my overarching uh, response to much of what you had to say, was that I might even agree with a lot of what you said, but at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't really uh, undermine the Protestant position, uh, because it fails to do what needs to be done, which is to specify and to defend the claim that there is something other than Scripture that functions as an infallible rule of doctrine and practice uh, for Christians today. Now, uh, you mentioned a number of things that uh, you know perhaps we could uh, discuss more profitably in the back and forth. I, I don't know, but I will try to uh, hit on a few points uh, in your opening statement. Uh, you uh, mentioned the problem of the canon of Scripture and cited as uh, many... Uh, critics of uh, Sola Scriptura are, are now doing, from what I could tell, uh, as an, a damaging admission, uh, R.C. Sproul's statement that the canon is a fallible collection of infallible texts. I, I don't think this is uh, necessarily the best way of wording it, but I don't know that it's incorrect either. I, I think that what we're looking at here is a reality that will not be uh, cannot be escaped uh, by simply rejecting sola scriptura, and that is that God and what God says is infallible, but human perception of what God says will always be fallible. And this is the this is a very important principle that needs to be understood, and I think it's at the heart of the disagreement. Frankly, human beings except when God superintends their speech, human beings are fallible in what they say. They're fallible in their understanding, and they're fallible in their verbalization of God's truth. Even when they are simply trying to paraphrase what Scripture says, they are fallible because uh, we are all imperfect, and uh, uh, we all have our perspectives and our limitations and so forth. And so, our perception of God's truth is always going to be fallible. Now, this is the case with everything. This is the case with the canon of Scripture. 
This is the case with the text of Scripture. For example, I don't have an infallible knowledge of the correct textual reading in every case of every variant that we find in the Old and New Testament manuscripts. Nobody does. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, Scripture isn't the infallible Word of God. It just means that our knowledge of that infallible Word of God is fallible. Scripture is infallible. Our knowledge of Scripture is not infallible. That's true of the canon. That's true of the text. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not right about the canon. It just means that we're not infallible in our thinking about the canon. Now, that's easy enough to demonstrate from church history itself. If the church had an infallible uh, knowledge of the canon as the uh, Holy Spirit ins uh, inspired and led church, uh, then there would never have been centuries of argument and debate about the extent of the canon, both for the New Testament and the Old Testament. The church would simply have known, because it would have had this infallible, uh, charismatic leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, which would assure that they would know uh, from the get-go, what was Scripture and what was not. But they didn't have that. Uh, there was debate about the extent of the canon. There was debate about which books belonged and which books did not. Uh, and it, the debate went on for centuries. Uh, the reason why it went on is because human beings have a fallible knowledge of all things, including the canon, the text of Scripture, and the proper interpretation of Scripture. So uh, human beings may be right about the canon, some of us are and some of us aren't, I, su I suspect, right about the exact, exact extent of the canon. Uh, but that doesn't uh, change the fact that uh, Scripture alone is the infallible uh, rule of doctrine and practice. Now, you also suggested that while you would agree that all doctrine had to be biblical, it had to be rooted and, and demonst demonst demonstrable from Scripture, uh, that not all practice needs to be uh, demonstrable from Scripture. I actually agree, uh, but that doesn't change the fact because my claim is not that all practice must be uh, de demonstrated from Scripture, but that all practice must be consistent with Scripture. Uh, the church can do anything it wants as long as it's being consistent with Scripture. So if they want to have liturgy, uh, and arrange the liturgy in a particular way, if they want to use a particular form of music, uh, if they want to uh, do worship in a certain way, if they want to uh, use certain uh, uh, terminology or words in the performance of baptism, uh, all of that's fine as long as it's consistent with Scripture. Uh, so the, my claim is not that all pr uh, practice must be uh, easily read off of Scripture, uh, but that it must be consistent with Scripture. And that any practice that is not demonstrable from Scripture, while it may be legitimate, cannot be imposed on all Christians. That is, you cannot require all Christians to go along with a practice uh, and oblige them to submit to that practice and to, to accept it as given to be part of the church if it's not something that can be demonstrated from Scripture to be required of all Christians. That would be a, a, a natural implication of sola scriptura. Now, it's true that, as and I explained this in my opening statement, that while the apostles were still living, uh, the church would not be operating under a regimen that might be described as sola scriptura because they had living apostles whose words uh, verbally expressed, orally expressed, would carry the same authority in the church as written scripture. Uh, so naturally, during the New Testament period, you don't have the church operating by a principle of sola scriptura. What we could say is they're operating by a principle of sola verbi deus, or whatever the exact Latin phrase would be. I'm sorry, my Latin's not very good. Uh, only by the word of God. That's really what sola scriptura means. It means that we, the church is to be governed at, by the infallible rule of the Word of God and nothing else. So if you've got the Word of God in oral and written form, terrific. You go by both of them. If you only have it in written form, however, that's it. That's your infallible rule. So the rule doesn't change. It's always that the Word of God, the verbal communication from God to man, 
is the only infallible rule of doctrine and practice for the church. That doesn't change. But the form of the word of God changes when you don't have men authorized to speak the word of God orally in the way that prophets and apostles could. Now, you mentioned 2 Thessalonians 2.15 in this connection, and as I already explained, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 is not talking about an oral tradition that is passed down beyond the first generation of the apostles. Here's where your position actually becomes anachronistic. Paul is talking about the fact that they were the Christians in Thessalonica were expected to accept the apostolic teaching, whether they got it orally in person or in the form of a written letter. Once the apostles are not around and their words are only reliably preserved in Scripture, then Scripture alone functions as the only infallible Word of God available to the Church to govern its doctrine. Well, I've run out of time for this uh, uh, rebuttal, so uh, I will stop there. And again, thanks, Lawrence, very much for your kind and thoughtful presentation. Okay, thank you, Rob. And now I'll turn to you, Lawrence, for your 10-minute rebuttal. Okay, I'd like to um, review a number of points that uh, Rob uh, brought forward, both in the opening statement and uh, uh, ideally in his uh, rebuttal uh, during the next uh, 10 minutes. Now, what uh, um, I wanted to emphasize, and I didn't hear really a disagreement, is that Sola Scriptura, because of the way it is understood and practiced, because of the way, as I mentioned from the uh, an older um, Confession of Faith, uh, Westminster uh, denies the role of the, fa- of the Church as almost an indep- indispensable agent to to practically bring the canon and the scripture as a usable uh, corpus uh, to uh, Christians. My main point, therefore, was that the slogan, which is so identified with uh, Protestantism and the Reformation, is in fact misleading, uh, dangerous, and possibly uh, toxic. And I want to make sure that this this, uh, aspect is clear. The second uh, point that I wanted to mention is that what then is there to offer if not sola scriptura? Since we agree that the scriptures have a unique, unique nature, a unique place, they're the only a certified uh, uh, word of God and apostolic teaching which we have today in a really certified form. What then orthodoxy offers is in fact what has always been in operation which is the church established by Christ to exist until the end of the age, to never fail in its uh, battle against uh, the gates of Hades. Uh, Hades, secondly, tradition, which is two things. It simply means to pass things down. Tradition, therefore, is the way that the entire faith, that is, the dogmas, the doctrines, as well as the way things are done in the church, which is the household of God, are passed. And that's done through the offices of uh, uh, bishop, presbyter, and deacon, and through the, 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 the geographical continuity that has existed in orthodoxy since, uh, since uh, Pentecost. And then uh, tradition is also, of course, uh, what the apostles did do and did practice which was, in fact, passed on. For example, uh, in the discussion about uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, what we have is a standing order to the Thessalonians, uh, I would say for as long as as could be, that they would be uh, obedient and maintain the traditions or teachings that were given to them by the apostles, either orally, or in uh, writing. This is a standing order. To this very day, by the way, there is a Christian community in Thessaloniki, which is, uh, of course, a Greek Orthodox church, and what they have received from the apostles, and I'll give you examples, they still practice unchanged. This, I would say, is a standing order, and I would also uh, give a reason to believe that what what was passed on 
orally was especially concerning the liturgical practices. For example, when uh, when St. Paul t- writes to the Corinthians, another uh, church in Greece to this very day, by the way, um, uh, he says, what I have received, I also handed down to you. Then he talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, how it was to be administered. There is the language of tradition that is specifically applied to the sacraments uh, or mysteries. In other words, for the scriptures to really function practically, it has to function in a context and in a relationship with church and tradition. Because as we have heard from Rob, there is the, you could say, the ideal concept, sola scriptura, uh, the certainty that is in God's realm about the text of scripture, about the canon. And then there is the reality of, of us. Uh, and he admits that, well, uh, we have uh, only limited knowledge, fallible knowledge, we are not quite sure about things. And this is why there was a process, for example, with the discernment of the canon. But again, this discerning of the canon was inseparable from tradition, which informed the bishops about the origin of these books to validate where they were coming from, their use in the local churches, as well as the authority given to the churches, therefore to the bishops as, as, as heads of their uh, individual churches, uh, the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth, and having received this tremendous authority from the Lord, since in case of dispute, there was a permanent mechanism in Matthew 18, which is recourse to the church. Can it be therefore said that Christians can change worship and decide to do things differently? We would say no. I'll give you an example where uh, there will be a debate in about two weeks. I know that Rob and I would disagree is the issue of infant baptism. Now, clearly, Sola Scriptura Christians disagree strongly on this particular topic. Why? Because the Scriptures are not meant to give us information about how the sacraments, the mysteries, are to be administered. We could make a very strong case uh, for infant baptism from the Scriptures alone. But what really clinches it, so to speak, is that Origen, writing in about the uh, uh, 200s, says that it is from the apostles that the churches have received this practice to baptize infants. And to this very day, therefore, what is described in these early documents is still practiced in the Orthodox churches. If I had uh, uh, more time, I would read what St. Basil wrote uh, around the year uh, 350. The same St. Basil, who writes that the scripture is to be the, uh, the ultimate judge when there's a dispute in matters of, of dogma, because dogmas have to be rooted in the scriptures. But the same St. Basil says that, and I'll read here from uh, his uh, treatise on the Holy Spirit, uh, section 66, he says, of the beliefs and practices, whether generally accepted or publicly enjoined, which are preserved in the church, some we possess, derived from written teaching, other we have received delivered to us, quote, in a mystery that is by way of the sacraments, by the tradition of the apostles. And both of these, in relation to true religion, have the same force. No one will dare say, no one who is moderately versed in the institutions of the church uh, to dispute this. And then he talks about these traditions coming from the apostles, uh, which are uh, in a way, infallible in the, in the sense that if we do not follow the, these traditions, then we are simply inventing things and we are less and less secure. There's less and less certainty. But if we do these things, we have the certainty that these things, which were, has been, have been practiced by the Holy Churches for centuries, which have apostolic origin, truly uh, are in, in harmony with the mind of Christ. And so, uh, in this particular description by St. Basil, he cites all these things which to this very day the Orthodox do. The sign of the cross, the uh, triple immersion at baptism, the anointing with holy, the holy chrism, facing east in prayer, not to kneel on Sunday, 
And he explains that all of these things are important. And that without these things, then if you only have the scriptures, which you disconnect ultimately through your own interpretation and disputes from the, the body of the apostolic churches and from the tradition received over these early centuries, then what you have is a, is a disintegration that we see in uh, the Protestant world and therefore uh, a, f a failure of the scriptures to function, which is to bring Christ uh, to people and people to Christ through the church which he established. That will conclude my rebuttal. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. Okay, well, I hope you, that you're enjoying the debate as much as I was at this point. That concludes the first half of the debate, and in the second half, you'll get to hear cross-examination, closing arguments, and Q&A, and that'll be in episode 82. Until then... Thank you.